Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. created us for intimacy with himself, but we struggle in our movement towards that intimacy, longing for something more. This is The Soul Struggle with Janet Gosman, helping you identify the struggle, what brought you there, and how to move through it towards the intimacy with God our soul longs for. Welcome to The Soul Struggle. I am Janet Gosman. I received my Bible and counseling degrees from Multnomah Bible College in Western Seminary, Seattle. I am a biblical counselor and an international speaker. As a counselor, I specialize in abuse issues, depression, and anxiety. I also work with codependency and boundary issues. At the beginning of this series, I introduced seven soul struggles that we will encounter on our walk toward intimacy with God. And today, we will talk about the third soul struggle— of obedience versus disobedience. Now, obedience is not in relationship to our salvation. Our salvation or justification is by grace through faith alone. Our obedience is about our sanctification or our growth toward holiness in our walk, in our Christian walk. Obedience will produce good works, which are an evidence of your faith. So today we will talk about obedience as it relates to temptation. So how do we come into the struggle with obedience? Well, an event, an opportunity, a new idea or philosophy comes to us and questions arise. Is this right? Should I? Shouldn't I? Can I? Can't I? What if I do? What if I don't? And the mind enters into a battle. We are in mental confusion. This struggle often is a struggle between my own desires and will in opposition to God, His will, and His word. So where did this soul struggle with obedience first begin? We must go to the scriptures to find the truth, and it is found in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We read that God created a beautiful garden. It was called Eden. This is not a fairy story or a piece of fiction. And how do we know that? Because God gave these two people names, Adam and Eve. He named them. God placed man and woman that he created in this beautiful, perfect environment. Now in the middle of that garden, God placed two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God would walk with these this couple in the evenings, and what a beautiful beginning of relationship and intimacy as they spent time together. And we're told that God gave Adam one command, and these are God's words. 
You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, Scripture tells us there was a serpent that was more crafty than any of the wild animals. He was a beautiful serpent that stood upright and could speak. This was a strange thing, a unique appearance. Animals don't speak, but this one did. Did the appearance of this unique creature give it some type of special honor, influence, and respect in Eve's eyes? Certainly, whatever this creature said, it was to be considered. Revelation 22 makes it very clear to us who this beautiful serpent is. He is the devil or Satan. Satan's statement to her was, You shall not surely die, and it was in direct contradiction to what God had said. No doubt his authoritative manner and unique character began to create doubts about God's word in her mind. But God did say to them in that day that they ate, they would surely die. Did they know death? No, no experience of death. They had not a clue about the pain that death brings. Nothing had ever died. No animal, and I don't believe a leaf had even fallen off the tree to the ground. And since they did not know the pain and suffering that death brings, this temptation possibly didn't seem like such a big deal. Besides, Satan offered them another option to disobey with no consequence. You shall not surely die. Satan then continues his subtle manipulation of her mind by stating that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. What did she already know? She only knew good. So what didn't she know? She didn't know evil. Satan tells her, if you just knew evil, you would be like God. Oh my, what a diabolical ruse. Satan made evil look like a good thing something to be desired, something they were missing. He deceived them into even thinking that God was withholding something good from them. And in that moment, they failed to trust and believe that what God said was the truth. They decided not to believe God's word, so they took the fruit and ate it. Now we know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve succumbed to the tempter's enticement and seemingly believed that there would be no consequence to their disobedience. After all, God is a God of love, and he certainly wouldn't punish them in that way with death. But God did do what he said he would do. They died, and we die. The scourge of the whole human race is death. That is Satan's great deception today. He makes sin look desirable. Why, if you just, you'll be happy or you'll be loved, you'll be famous, you'll be rich, you'll have a claim, and the list goes on and on because Satan always makes it look so good. But we can never conceive of or understand the consequences of our sin until we sin. Before we sin, we have no concept of what the consequences will really be like. Let's take a look at the source of Eve's disobedience and the ultimate consequence of death that passed to the whole human race. 1 John 2.16 says, All that is in the world, or the worldly system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. All disobedience or sin stems from one or more of these three temptations, 
Let us see how Eve measures up. Scripture says she saw that the fruit was good for food, lust of the flesh. These are our five bodily senses. Then the fruit was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eye. And then it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. And this is the pride of life. Anything that we desire that feeds our ego. Scripture warns us about these basic seductions. These are Satan's weapons, and they are strong weapons. Satan blinds our eyes to the consequence by turning our eyes to desire. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. These enticements all move us away from the source of our life, God. Satan's goal is to move our Godward gaze away in order to look at our own soul's satisfaction. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we are like sheep and have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So God has not left us in the dark in regard to the things that will bring about pain, hurt, grief, and that moves us away from our source of life himself. Scripture tells us that the Ten Commandments are there to tell us what sin is, to define it for us. If we did not have these laws, we would not know what sin was and would suffer without knowing why. God does not play games with us. He tells it like it is. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what were his commandments? He said it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the basis for obeying Jesus' words or commands is love. So let's look at the basic Ten Commandments and see how they fit Jesus' criteria. Number one. You shall not have any gods before me. Number two, you shall not make any graven image. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These first four are about loving God. I do want to make a comment on number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, because it's very disturbing to me when I hear Christians using God's name in vain by saying, Oh my God, or Oh Lord, or Oh Jesus. This is wrong and it's sin. Number five, you shall honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not commit murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony. And number ten, you shall not covet. These last six are about loving people. So do we keep them? The answer is no. Yet all Ten Commandments are about loving God and loving others. Love is to be the basis of my actions. So why don't we obey them? When we struggle with obedience, there is something deep inside that cries out to be gratified. I would like to look at two examples of men that went through this struggle with obedience and disobedience. These two men are Saul and David. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read how 
Saul had been anointed king by the prophet Samuel at the Lord's command. Now Saul was a promising king with a great and glorious career before him. He was tall and handsome. Now the Amalekites were avowed enemies of Israel, God's chosen people, and had tried to annihilate Israel on many occasions and whenever opportunity presented itself. When Israel was unarmed and hungry and needing water following the exile from Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them from behind. These attacks and wars continued through the years because the Amalekites not only hated Israel, but hated the God of Israel. There was no desire for negotiation here. Their goal was annihilation. In chapter 15, God commands Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites and their livestock. This is out of protection for Israel and for the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through Israel all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that is why God makes this command to continue to allow the Amalekites to exist when they hate Israel's God and Israel would be to put that promise in jeopardy. Saul goes to war against the Amalekites. When the battle is over and Saul has been victorious, he keeps King Agag alive and reserves the best of the animals. The Lord speaks to the prophet Samuel in regard to King Saul's disobedience. And so Samuel goes to the king and confronts him. And when Saul sees Samuel, he states, I have carried out the Lord's instructions, and this is a lie. Samuel responds by, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears, and what is the lowing of cattle I hear? Now listen closely to Saul's reply. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Notice he takes no responsibility for his disobedience. He blames and excuses and even tries to make his disobedience look like it's for a good cause. Samuel repeats God's command to completely wipe out the Amalekites with all their animals. And Saul replies, but I did obey the Lord. Notice the denial. And then he states, I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king. Samuel's reply is, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul repeatedly denies, he excuses, Finally, he says, I have sinned, but in that response, he makes a request that Samuel would please honor him by going back with him so that he could have honor before the people and before the elders. Notice, he wants Samuel to return with him to honor him. He wants to look good before the people. He wants to look the part of the great king, not the rejected king. This is not true repentance. So what was Saul's sin? He wanted glory and honor, 
And in that day when a nation was conquered, the victor king would bind the defeated king in chains and parade him through the streets. Saul, I believe, wanted acclaim. He wanted glory, which is pride. Saul's sin was the pride of life. Saul is a good example of the responses often made when a person is confronted with sin and there is no repentance. There's a denial of sin, excusing of self, even turning the focus to look good even though sinning, and blaming someone else. There's another man. His name is King David. Now David was a man after God's own heart, and David loved God. After David became king, the scripture says that in the spring when kings go out to war, David stayed home. Why would he do that? I believe that because God blessed him, he won every battle. And so he became bored. He didn't have to go out to war anymore. He could let the commander of his army take care of that. They would always win. So David remains at home in the palace. And one evening he went out to look over his city and while he was looking, he saw a woman bathing on her rooftop. He sent for her. He had a sexual relationship with her and sent her home. Later, she sends him a message that she is pregnant. She is with child, and he is in a jam. So he makes a plan and decides to send for her husband, Uriah, who is in his army fighting for him. He will bring Uriah home, and Uriah will come and sleep with his wife, and later he will believe that the child she is pregnant with is his. But when Uriah returns home, he refuses to go home, so he sleeps outside the palace. David tries many schemes to get him to go home, but all of them fail. So he comes up with another plan. He writes a sealed order, sending it with Uriah, informing the commander of the army to place Uriah in the front of the battle, and when the battle is growing strong, for the army to pull back, leaving Uriah up front to be killed. So the commander did as commanded, and Uriah is killed. David then took Bathsheba to be his own wife. Now Nathan the prophet comes to David one day and reminds him that he is the judge of Israel, and they have a problem in Israel and need David to give his judgment. Nathan tells a story of a man who had a pet lamb. The lamb would even sleep in the house. It was special. One day, the man's neighbor had a feast. But he didn't want to kill one of his own lambs to serve to his guests, so he stole the pet lamb, killed it, and served it to his guests. What was David's reaction? Kill the man, he said. Then Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, You are the man. David committed both adultery and murder. However, David's temptation began with both the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. But what was David's response? Did he deny? No. Did he make an excuse, like, after all, I was lonely and I should be able to be happy? No. Did he blame? It was Bathsheba's fault and she shouldn't have been on the roof bathing where he could see her. No, he didn't do that either. Instead, he fell on his face before God and said, I have sinned. He immediately confessed and repented. A man after God's own heart confesses and repents when he sins. 
A person who longs after God when he does sin will not go to denial, excusing, or blaming, but will go to repentance and confession. However, as stated earlier, there are always consequences. Saul lost his kingdom, and even though David repented and was forgiven by God, he had earthly consequences as his oldest son, Absalom, caused David to flee into exile while he, Absalom, attempted to take his father's throne and kingdom. Sinclair Lewis, in his book, A Heart for God, states, The person who wants to know God, but who has no heart to obey God, will never enter into the sacred courts where God reveals himself to the soul of man. When we choose to obey, it is for our ultimate and greatest good, but most of all, it is for God's greatest glory. So, when struggling with sin, first, let's look at what goes on in the mind. Because after all, sin begins in the mind. It's the thought life, what do I think on? Do you fantasize? Do you spend your days in fantasy? Where do you go? Do you try to create a perfect situation? The perfect mate who has no flaws? A dangerous thing. Because there is no such person. Ultimately, our mate cannot possibly measure up to this fantasy. It's all about what we don't have. Fantasy is like a train, leaving the station empty and returning empty. This sin of the mind will reveal itself in attitudes and behaviors. Do you think on negativity? Something happens and you run your mind on negativity all day long. Or is there a grateful spirit? Or is there a complaining spirit? When the difficulties happen, do I complain or gripe or do I express gratefulness to God for what I do have? So when I am tempted, I need to ask, am I trusting my own reasoning, listening to what the world is telling me is okay, or am I seeking out God's word? Then ask yourself, is this about lust, gratifying my flesh in a way that violates God's word? And ask, is this about pride, Am I seeking after something in order to feed my own ego? And last, ask, what are the possible consequences? And how will I ever deal with those consequences? Will I deny, blame, excuse? Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Disobedience will walk you down a painful path. God did not give his commands in order to be a power controller. He gave them because he knows what will hurt us, what will bring us deep pain. He does not want us to hurt. However, Satan hates you. Satan hates all of God's creation and his goal is to destroy us. So if I conclude that I'm not willing to walk in obedience in some area of my life, Besides denying, excusing, and blaming, I will struggle with indecision and will make poor life decisions. So how do we fight this temptation? 
Do I seek God's face when I'm in a struggle? Or do I try and figure it out myself? Do I seek out scripture that pertains to my particular struggle or your particular struggle? Romans 12, 2 states that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Philippians 4, 8 says that we are to think on what things are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Next, we are to resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 7 tells us this. How did Jesus resist temptation? He did it with scripture. Jesus was God. He could have made up his own words to fight Satan, but he didn't. He used scripture. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, No temptation has seized us except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. One good, excellent way to resist temptation when it comes in your view or tempts you is don't focus on the thing that is tempting you. This is huge. For example... If I receive a chocolate cake and I set it on the table, but I'm not supposed to have chocolate cake, actually shouldn't have it at all, but I receive the cake and I place it there and it looks so good. I walk by it, but I determine I'm going to resist it. But I walk by it again and it looks more and more delicious every time I walk by. You know what's going to happen. First, I'm going to take just a small slice. Then a little later, I'm going to take another small slice until pretty soon the whole cake has been eaten. How could I have, res how could I have resisted that temptation? Get rid of the cake. I needed to put it somewhere else. The same is true with temptation. If I look at the temptation, I will do it. I must turn and look at Jesus. I must look to scripture and praise. I must think about God. It works. I have done this myself on many an occasion when I have had a temptation I look at my mind and I turn my mind away from the thing that is tempting me. So let me just look once more. How do we fight it? We seek God first and we seek out scripture that pertains to the struggle. We resist the devil and he will flee from us. James 4, 7 promises that. We look to scripture. And then we do not focus on the thing that is tempting us. We turn our eyes away and focus on Jesus, on scripture, on praise. It works. Thank you for listening to The Soul Struggle with Janet Gosman. Janet is an international speaker and biblical counselor in the Portland metro area, specializing in depression, anxiety, and abuse issues. 
To contact Janet, call 503-658-6639. That's 503-658-6639. Visit her website for more information and resources at soulstruggle.com. Soulstruggle.com. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.